welcome to Season 3, Episode 5 of The Modern Extractor. This podcast focuses on the processes, equipment, and science found in a cannabis extraction laboratory. I'm your host, Jason Showard, and I work professionally in the cannabis extraction field. In Season 1, we followed material through an ethanol extraction lab, starting with biomass and following it all the way through to distillate and isolate. We stopped at each stage along the way and picked it apart with an industry expert guest. In season two, we did the same, but with hydrocarbon extraction and all the craft concentrates that that style can produce. Here in season three, it's less of a step-by-step walk through a lab, and I open up the format to be able to cover all the interesting things happening in the extraction and cannabis lab science space today. On today's show, I'm joined by the master of hash, Frenchy Cannoli. As many of you already know, on July 18th, Frenchie unexpectedly passed away due to complications from a surgery. The news of his passing, as well as countless pictures of Frenchie's giant smile next to anyone and everyone, quickly spread across social media. Then came all the posts from all corners of our community celebrating Frenchie's life, his countless accomplishments, and all the different personal connections that people had with him. There are certainly a lot of people in this world with a warm place in their hearts for Frenchie Cannoli. Catherine Sidman, who will be on the show next week, recently asked me if I'd like to record a message for her recorded tribute that she's creating to honor Frenchie. I was uncomfortable at first, as I didn't know him personally, and the only time that I really spoke directly to him was for this interview. But he had an impact on me, even prior to the interview, so I decided to do it, and I'd like to play it for you now. Hey, this is Jason Showard from The Modern Extractor. I didn't know Frenchie as well as most of the people that will be speaking here. At first, I didn't think it was my place to speak up because I didn't really know him personally. And the more I thought about it, the more the idea grew on me because he did make a lasting impression. The first time Frenchie came onto my radar was at Concentration 2019. I knew absolutely nothing about the man other than the fact that he was on stage with a microphone and I had a hard time understanding him. But there he was this animated Frenchman, in a love affair with the trichome, or the fruit of the plant as he called it, absolutely bubbling with the excitement and the love that he had for his craft. He captivated the audience. I listened really hard, and I was determined to get used to his thick accent because I had to know what he was saying. He was so passionate about what he was saying that I had to know what it was. That's how you get people's attention. It may be a bit of a cliché, But when people say, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life, I can't help but think that Frenchie Cannoli embodied that to the fullest. Recently, I was lucky enough to spend some time recording him speak about his life and his work. And there I was again, captivated by his stories and his quest for perfection and the passion that he had for all things hash. I found myself listening to him speak like I was in the audience, forgetting that I had to keep the interview rolling with follow-up questions whenever he'd finish a thought. Luckily, I can edit out the pauses. There was something special about Frenchie. He inspired people. He loved to spread his knowledge. He loved to teach. He loved to innovate. And he loved to explore the science behind great hash. And we could all tell just how much he loved it, which is one of the reasons I think the community had such love for him. I think we can all take something away from his approach to the world when we're charting a course in our own lives. Do something you love. Thanks, Frenchie. So, today on the show, I'd like to welcome a man who made an incredible impact on the cannabis community. He traveled the world studying the various techniques used to create the original cannabis concentrate, 
then helped revolutionize the modern equipment and processes we use to make hash today. He made a permanent mark on our industry and will never be forgotten. Frenchy Canoli, welcome to The Modern Extractor. Thank you for having me here. Absolutely. I'm very excited to have you on the show today. I couldn't imagine doing an episode on hash with anybody else. Uh, where are we talking to you from? I'm in Richmond, California. Okay. I grew up in the East Bay. That's my old stomping grounds. So you have an incredibly interesting story about how you got to where you are today. It's a path that spans multiple continents, even more countries, and I'm excited to share it with the listeners. Tell us a little bit about your travels and how you found your love for hash. Well, the first things I smoked when I was 17 years old was hashish, and it was a revelation. It's like, you know, at 17 years old, you forget your kid's dream and you're facing a lifetime of nine to five. And it scared the, you know what I told me. It's like, it, I, I couldn't see it, but I didn't know what to do. And smoking that joint of Lebanese brought back all my childhood where the only things I wanted to really, really do was traveling. All my heroes were crazy adventurers and uh, I had forgot, forgotten that in, uh, with my teenage years, it was more uh, girls. And in that joint, I really, that was it. I just waited for my 18 years old so that I was an adult to get out of France and just travel. And I did that for 18 years solid, never going back to France. Living in producing country mostly. Okay. <laughs> All right. So it was the travel that, that really bit you. You were living in producing countries that were making hash. How did you end up making the relationships and connections to be able to start working in the field and learning about it? The people that were asking me, it's like, you just go and play the game. <laughs> in, India, in India, you can rent field to the local because you do a live resin stick on your hand. So you pick up a valet, you go at the end of the valet and you rent field from the local so that they don't have to do it themselves. Uh, in Morocco, it's different. You go in the winter, you need to, you're, uh, you're buying, bund you want, I, I wanted to buy the bundle to make it myself. But you, I, I want to smoke only the cream of the cream. It's like that's what that's why I did it myself because the quality I wanted is not for sale. It's the stash of the local. So there is a whole game when you arrive in a place and you 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 all smoke. It's like you need to get respected for your knowledge. And the first thing they're going to show you. It's what their great grandfather couldn't sell already. Okay? And then it go by stage. Say, oh no, I don't think I like that. Thank you very much. Like I'm going. No, 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 no. Tell another tea. Let me bring you some more. <laughs> and slowly, slowly, they, they up the quality until you know they're really showing you the good stuff, but that's not even what I want. Me, I want your stash. So now the deal is. In a, in a ash producing country, the deal is, I'm gonna, I'm gonna need so much bundle 
to make so much ash, but I'm going to keep only 5%, 7% maybe, if you work really well, of the of what I produce. But you're gonna, I'm going to have to live with you three or four months to be able to do that. So you need to have a relation with them first. They respect your knowledge of, 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 of resin. And because you don't have much money to put on the table, you need to have a deal that makes that where they're a winner. Where they, yeah, it's crazy. Let's do it. You know, nobody, nobody does that or very, very, very few people does that. In India, I lived for months in cave in a, at 8,000 feet in the Himalaya. I mean, I was crazy. For resin, I would have done anything. I think you say Well, that is why that is why you're the right man for this show. There's, I've never seen anybody speak more passionately about hash, and, uh, and some of these old stories just uh, just bring a smile to my face. <laughs> so the show, this show in particular, is fairly technical. It's directed at folks that work in extraction labs and cannabis processing facilities. A lot of the shows that are a little bit more targeted at the consumer tend to skip over some of this audience's favorite parts. So let's get into the science behind hash. Yeah, so uh, something that I've heard you speak very passionately about on multiple occasions in the past is the difference between extraction and separation. You're very adamant that hash is not made by extracting, and I'd like to talk about why that's different and why it's important. So a gland, a trichome, it's an exuberance. It's a protuberance on a plant, okay? It's not part of the body of the plant. Mm-hmm. And the word extraction, it implies that you're taking something from a matrix, gold from rocks. Uh, you, you, for example, you extract gold in a mine, but you pan it in a river. It's a big difference. You, uh, you, ex- you extract the juice from a fruit, but you harvest, you separate the fruit from the tree. You don't extract the fruit from the tree. There is a huge difference. So when, as long as resin and tricon gland goes, when you extract the resin from the matrix that created the resin, then it's an extraction. But when I shake a plant and the gland that is attached to the stock by an abscission like a fruit fall by itself over a sieve, it's pretty different. So I separate, I agitate first to detach the gland from the stock, which fall on my tool, a sieve, where I do a separation to separate the gland from the contaminant, the plant contaminant. And that's dry sieving. And it's something that I have done for years in producing country. When I caressed the plant live in a mountain of, in India, I didn't extract the resin from the gland. I collected the gland on my hand. And even if you, if you test it, you can really experience the difference between smoking hashish, which is a, 
a cozy, warm feeling of well-beingness that lasts pretty long, to Rosin, which is the closest, but it's an extraction you leave behind the matrix, which punch you, it's speedy and short. So it's different product. And when you leave the matrix that creates the resin, you leave something important of what is the tricon gland behind. When I press my gland into a mass of resin, the matrix is within the, 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 the resin. It's pretty much like wine. To make wine, you need to crush the whole grape. If you extract the juice from the grape, you can make many alcohol, up to ethanol 99.9. But you cannot make wine without the wholeness of the, of the grain, like the fermentation process would not happen. It's pretty much the same because I can age ash. The ash like gets smoother and the, the terpene profile change. The cannabinoid change. Yes, like cannabinoids that are not detectable in a flower become detectable after months of aging. So in your opinion, uh, with the gland material or the matrix that's holding the oil that we would be extracting through traditional extraction techniques. What is it about that matrix that's holding this oil that, that changes the experience? You have to understand that everything that is in that gland is toxic to the plant, most of it. So the plant has the ability to control everything in that gland, especially the membrane. That's why in tropical country, in the mountain in India, where there is a lot of insect predator and, uh, in general, harsh condition, big difference between night and day, but it's, uh, it's all green, there is water, it's a rich land, the plant grow wide with smooth, uh, narrow leaves, branch a lot, and have a lot of resin glands, small, but super sticky. So that any insect approaching is dead. There is no way to escape the, that. It's a protection, it's a defensive system of the plant. If you go in the Hindukush mountain, where it's super windy, super dusty, with the same harsh condition, the plant is going to stay low, The, because they cannot branch, they need to make the leaf wider to be able to do all that photosynthesis that the plant needs for her life. And the glands, they cannot be dusty. They cannot be sticky because otherwise they would be dusty. And all the function of the UV reabsorption by the gland and everything would be uh, impaired seriously. So the membrane is thicker so that they, it doesn't exude. The, the, The amount of terpene, everything the plant make, depending on where it grows, literally. It's amazing the, the level of, uh, of control the plant has of that defensive system. It's 
the plant kingdom is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just the ability to control how how to protect itself and uh, how to protect itself from itself at times. That's why, to give you an example, that's why you have mostly three types of, of texture of, of the tricon gland. You have super sticky, you have a little sandy, and you have one that is very rare that feels like lotion, which is not good for making ash. So that actually leads me into uh, to another question here for you. With um, You've studied hash making at length all over the world. Let's take it back to a little bit more of the basic traditional processes without all this new high-tech stuff that people have going on right now. Um, let's say a farmer has just harvested his field and now would like to make some hash in a more traditional manner. Walk us through what that process looks like. So it will depend the region. In India, Nepal, they don't harvest. They literally work on a f- in a field, sticking the live resin in their hands. That's the oldest, the oldest tech of collecting resin, sticky hand. Now, w- would this be with the plants still in the ground? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. To be in the field of ganja when you are like, five, six, seven, eight thousand feet high in the mountain of the Himalaya, like the, they all have a different terpene profile if you smell one by one. But the field has a very specific profile in itself and it can even change between fields that are not so far away one from each other. And you rise in the middle, sticking resin in your hand with the an overdose almost of, of terpene. It's like it's so intense. The terpene rushing at you nonstop all day long. Your eye on, on it. It's, I don't know. It's sticking your pore, the pore of your skin. Also imagine. And I would do that for uh, weeks in a row, two, three months, depending how early I was for the, for the season every day. So walk me through what this actually looks like. You're you're out there. You're there to work and collect resin and make hash. Uh, you you get up in the morning. You go grab the grab a bag or something to collect your your hash off of your hands into, and you go set out into the field. You you eat a big breakfast. You wait for the sun to hit the field, and uh, you need to have all the dew uh, evaporate before you start. Okay. Super important because if you have water with your resin, it's not going to stick anymore. Uh, so you, you, you have a big meal, you make all the sleeves that you're going to smoke during the day in advance because when you have sticky hand, you smoke, you stop for nothing. And then you go in the field. The plant are, when you have a field of wild cannabis, it's a, it's a single branch, a single stalk with a long skinny head and maybe half a dozen big fan leaves. You cut with your fingertip those fan leaves and you caress gently the bud up and down. Once or twice, that's it. It's, it's a waste, huh? don't get me wrong. You get maybe 30% of the resin. And on your first hand, on your first plant, you look in the sun, it's super shiny and it's already super sticky. And then, flower by flower, 
you layer your hand with uh, with resin until it became it can become quite quite dark, but it starts transparent, light orange, a little uh, more caramel, darker caramel until it's black, and every, after every hand you need to clean the the material that can stick with it, and you can you can make some uh, you can make some cream cream really like when uh, what I was doing. And what the locals that were working with me were doing is like, I don't know, it's over 90% resin. You have very, very little contaminant. When you have enough, you take your son, you pick up the thickest parts of resin on your hand, you press, turn, snap. And hop, it comes, your skin under it is pretty white after that. And you unstick all your resin from one hand. You take the chunk from your son and you do the same with your other hand. And then we usually use a thick plastic uh, material and we would flatten it like a, a pancake, as flat as possible, so that there is very, very little air, uh, oxygen degradation that could happen. And it's super fancy also because you can, you can literally go see through, like, or hand where like five, seven grams maximum. And you can do that maybe twice a day, three times a day. Is there a whole field full of people that are doing this? Is there a group of people that have come to do this? Or is it you with, with the family? How does that work usually? It depending, depending on the, on the places. Yeah. Otherwise, just like, uh, one or two guys. There is a, the mountain in the Himalaya, one of the few places in India where it's not overcrowded, quite the opposite. You have bear, I mean, it's wild up there. It's, uh, it's high up, not so many people live there. Uh, so it's mostly family stuff. That sounds fantastic. So there's another form of traditional hash making that you often see. Um, televised or or in the media where you'll see people with uh with a bucket or a, a pot of some sort and a screen and just kind of hitting it with sticks dry sieving yeah, that's morocco which is not the best example of dry sieving ever in the in the old day it was not bad at all because they 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 do they work with a, a big metal container wide which they stretch uh, your, the sieve material over it, but they make a pocket out of it. And they put the, the plant material, usually already pre-cleaned, or they break it, they break the flower over the, the bowl, and then they cover it with a plastic, uh, a heavy, heavy plastic, really tied up like a, a drum skin. And they tap with stick. So the, so that the plant material uh, is like on a trampolino and bounce on a sieve, on a, on a sieving material. So that the glands are pushed and go through the sieve material. And so the first pass is pretty light. You agitate gently and you collect the resin or you change what is inside. You, you change the material, you, 
put the material you just done on the side and you add a new one. When you finish your tile, you collect your resin. That's the first grade. Then the second time, you tap a little bit harder. And the third pass, you tap a little harder. And that makes you the grade. And they usually have like four, five grades of, uh, of quality. By the fifth grade, they, they really tap seriously and, uh, and the plant material really bounce, uh, and tap the, the plastic, uh, pretty forcefully sometimes. So then every time you, because you work with brittle material, every time you, you put more, uh, power, to your agitation, you create more contaminants. That's the problem with, uh, with, with sieving, with uh, dry sieving. So my experience with any kind of different grades of hash coming through would be more based on your mesh size. What it sounds like you're describing to me with this dry sieve technique is a lot less precise because this is based on the force with which you're agitating it as opposed to an actual mechanical separation like a mesh size. Is that accurate? That's a Moroccan tech. In, uh, in Afghanistan, they, they're smart. In Afghanistan, you have, they make a big frame. It's a bed, literally. Uh, and they stretch, they, they stretch the material, the sieve material over uh, a single bed size uh, frame. There is one guy on each side. You spread the material as wide as possible over the seal because if you have a small amount of, uh, of seal of perforation where you actually separate, but you have a big layer of, uh, of plant material, a lot of glands are going to separate, but stay stuck in the plant material. So you want as wide as possible your uh, working surface with as thin as possible the layer of plant material on it. So that when you agitate, when the gland fall, it falls directly on the on the tool, on the sieve, and after a few bounces, goes through the perforation. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So they on each side you have a guy that is gonna do the agitation and in the middle you have a guy that uh, makes sure that it never layered. So the first pass, they don't even, they hardly check the, the plant material. They put this on the side, they put a fresh one. And they make that because they have big pile, huh? so they, they don't collect every time. They do the pile super gently and they collect all that resin, that great one, and then they agitate a little bit stronger. Still, the guy making sure that it doesn't uh, layer in certain place. The third time, the guy they still agitate, but the guy in the middle also start breaking the buds. So how how do they go about making sure that it doesn't layer and go about breaking the buds? Is there a tool that someone would be using? Like the the, the first two or three pass, it's only agitation, like the. The, the two guys going up and down with the, with the frame and they just push gently the, the, the flower around. Then he start breaking them and 
perstèges. First it's lightly, then a bit more solidly, then it really breaks them all. And then, is a, then there is a stage where he starts caressing the bird over the, there is less agitation, and the guy literally brush the, the plant material over the sieve material. Then it starts to be in a, in a, in a lower grade at that level because you have, you have a lot of contaminant at that level. Understood, understood. So if we fast forward a few years from these more traditional techniques, uh, ice water started to become the go-to technique and is still the go-to technique for modern hash making today. So your friend Mila, the hash queen, has made some big advances in that style. You've also made some big advances in that style. Uh, how does ice water make a difference between that and dry sieve and the other styles that we discussed? But first, you work with a material that you rehydrate. That means it's not brittle anymore. You, it's hard to create plant contaminants when the material is supple. That's genius. But what is really the evolution of, of the game of, of sieving, and sieving is a very, very, very old game. She literally, Mila, literally separated agitation and separation. When you dry sieve, the methodology, there is two processes. While you agitate, you separate on your tool. You cannot break this apart. It's impossible. You know what I mean? You need, you need to go further to be able to, uh, to clean the contaminants that are created. When you use water, your material is supple, but then Mila separated the agitation in a little washer, uh, uh, home, uh, home clothes washing, mini washer, and she created the bag, the sieving, the sieving part. When, when it's, it's simple, huh? when I, the first time I went to a guy who was telling me, oh, have you ever done ice water uh, extraction? I said, no, I'm, uh, I'm curious to see. And he brought me to his place and I saw a bag with a sieve material and a little mini washer to agitate. Oh, and it was like, you have no idea. He had spent months for years doing dry sieving, trying my best to get the, the cream of the cream, the double zero in Morocco. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's insane what you do for quality when you dry sieve to get the over 90% cream. It's insane. To see that, it was like, ah, this is the only evolution of, in my game, a game that is millennium old. It's like, it's so, Genius. Yeah, it's pretty groundbreaking and something that's been around for that long to see a big like light bulb moment where things are going to change and you know they're going to change. Yeah, yeah. For me, it was, and from that, I, uh, I, I created my own stainless steel uh, machine. It's like I, uh, I fall in love with the vortex. I think it's a, it's the best tool to separate 
the gland from the stock. It has the power and the gentleness to do it. It cannot shred the fan leaf because you would need a might like a huge power of water to shred a, a leaf that has been rehydrated well. So it's like it's, it's the ultimate tool when uh, Nikati in Colorado and, and other ash makers were getting busted because they were working with plastic machine. I swear myself that uh, when it when it become legal in California, I will have a, a stainless steel machine and uh, and I did with a vortex. I have a patent on it. It's like it's uh, I created my my own baby from the knowledge I have of dry sieving for for many years and knowing the science behind. The, the botany of the trichome, how it's formed, how it's attached to the gland, and and when you use the word sea ice water sieving, if you read the, the definition of the word sieving, it gives you all the logical approach to the tech. But if you read the, the definition of the word extraction, it will not help you when you use ice water. It makes you make mistakes. You don't, you don't understand the logic behind the tech. And that's my only, the only advantage I had. Uh, and that's what I teach to my students. It's like my age is to, I have known from the beginning that I was sieving and the wa ice water is an important factor. Ice is only to make the water cold in the first place because when you sieve, the handicap with the, the resin, it's cold, it, it's sticky. So you need to work in cold condition for it to not stick on, on your sieving material. So I understood that ice was only to make the water cold, but that the power was in the water. And then I started to flip out on vortex because you can make homeopathic medicine in a vortex. You know what I mean? The, the best tea compost are made with a vortex. It's like, it's a powerful energy that is positive. Even if we don't, even if you may not feel it in the ash I make, I know that that positivity of my water is part of the wall as much as what I do personally. You know what I mean? Yeah. Your name basically is synonymous with some of the best hash in the world right now. Um, I'd like to take a moment to pick apart your processes and try to figure out, you know, the, the, the idea of this show is to help extractors and, and separators now uh, out there uh, imp improve their processes and make them better. So let's, let's break down your processes. We've got a stainless steel machine. Uh, we've got... So there is... You want as much water as possible, as little ice as possible. Ice cold water is better. And depending on the trim you're working with, the material you're working with, you have to, uh, to quantify what you would put in the water. Okay. I work with, uh, now it's a 50 gallon, uh, stainless steel machine. 
for with 50 gallons, I can put six kilos of sugar cream because the, the, I don't need so much power to brush every part of my sugar cream. But if I work with dense bud, I would put only four kilos, maybe three and a half. The, the denser, the, the, the more power you need to break apart, uh, your plant material, the least material you have to put with the water. You need more water to do the job. If it's only sugar cream, you don't need that much power to really capture all your gland. Understood. Uh, so let's actually chat about material selection to begin with here uh, and, and preparation. Is sugar trim the ideal trim? And before you put it in there, do you freeze it? No. I mean, it did not. No. No, 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 no. There is only two eggs in the quality that the plant is giving us. There is live resin and there is dry and cured. Minimum three months, up to nine months. That's the two peak of quality that the plant gives us through our trichome. And there is no in between. Okay. It's like cured flour and just dried flour. When you smoke it, you do smoke the difference. Okay. Well, in your resin, it's the same. There is a huge difference. And on top of it, if you have just dried plants, you have a, a lot of chlorophyll that's going to come in your water and that's going to degrade your gland when you collect them in the first place. I can, I can tell you how far you are in your curing by the color of my water. So you want live resin where the guy capture all the terpene the plant has. And the name of the game is to work fast enough so that you can separate all that as fast as possible and put it in the freezer. Then the only place where you're going to lose some of those steps is in, in, in your drying process. But you have to capture the wholeness of the plant profile, of the terpene profile of the plant line. So just to clarify here, we can work with fresh frozen material that was just harvested two days ago and stuck in a freezer and then get that material in frozen form and make good hash with it in your machine, correct? Yeah. Is that the best material to work with? No, because it's like there is more terp. Yeah, you lose a lot of terp when you dry and cure, but you don't have the same terpene profile. And sometimes it's radically different. Aficionado has had I mean, as a strain, Pinot Noir, okay? When you, when you do live resin, it's a field of flower, but not perfumey, really flower with a, a nice hint of lavender. I'm from South of France. I'm a sucker for lavender. But that same flower cured over three months, I make ashes is like chocolate. It tastes and smells like chocolate, I swear to God, it's insane. So if you ask me which is the best when I talk about the Pinot Noir, well, it's dried and cured. Now, if you tell me the same with banana strawberry, maybe not. You know what I mean? It depends on the strain. It's, 
it's not the amount of terpene, it's the wall of the terpene profile that is really important. Understood. Now, can you make hash with some fresh frozen material and then cure the hash to get it to get to that place? Or do you have to actually cure it on the plant first before you make the hash with it? You would edge. You wouldn't cure anymore. Okay. That's what I do with my the, with the dry material and cure also. It's like, for me, the curing happens on the plant, uh, with the plant. When you collect the gland, I, I don't call that a cure. I know extractors do, especially rosin uh, people, and I, I, I don't want to argue with them. I, the definition is maybe vague enough for that, but for me, I go into an aging process. Understood. So let's say we just finished a run on your machine. We've got a big stainless steel vessel full of water full of a bunch of biomass that we have washed the trichome heads off of. Mm -hmm. And now these trichome heads are suspended in the water. What's the process like to actually collect them? So you wait a little bit because the trichome glands are heavy with resin. So they're going to fall towards the bottom and the plant material is lighter. It's going to go up. You do not want too much plant material because you you may uh, have trichon gland prisoner into that mass. That's why the ratio is important. Then, under my machine, I have three sets of bags. I have first 190 to collect, uh, to collect the, all the plant material that are going to flow out. Then I have my 160 because 160, when you dry seal, it's a palier where you have great resin gland, but at the same time, you have contaminants the same size than the gland. So you cannot separate it by size. So you have like a great resin, resin, but there is a bunch of little dark points in it. And then I have my 45 because I don't want 70. I don't want 90. I don't want 120 separated. I want as wide a spectrum as possible. I care, I care less for the net that I care for that wide spectrum, which gives me more terpen and more cannabinoid than if I have only a slice of the cake, if you, uh, if you see what I mean. Understood. So it, it flows through it. There is every one of my bag is on its own frame and they're stuck over each other with a space in between so that the water really flows through my bags, which make my first separation, basically. And then I rinse my 190 bag thoroughly with a, a sprayer, maybe like a strong spray, to be sure that nothing is stuck into the material. This uh, you can put back in a machine or throw away depending on uh, where you are in the process. My 160, I clean super solely with a, I move the resin forcefully with a spray of water so that every gland as a, that is not 160, it's going to go through it. Simple. And I move it around. I usually don't collect it yet because there is not so, 
It's rare when there is a lot in a, in the 160 bag. You may do it twice during a, a, a run. It's already pretty rare. When it fill up at every time that you have to clean up, it's really, 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 really rare. And then my 45, the same. I really wash my gland over. I have full mesh bag to start with because the principle of sieving is the more surface you have, the better the work. So when I saw the bag, I, I custom made my own bag full sieve to be able to work well. And I literally bring my, uh, I, I move my resin up and down and I can chase the, the contaminants through the, the perforation of my bag. I do the, a super clean up like that. Even when I look at the resin and it looks super clean, if you put it over a white bucket and you move that resin around, that, those glands around, you're going to see that in that bucket, the water is not clean. It's not much, but it's like, I'm, uh, it's part of that evolution of the game. I can, I created my agitation device using the vortex that is the ultimate agitation tool. And I created my sieve where I could maximize that separation of precise and, and contaminant. All in the quest for perfection. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, it's like, that's the beauty of technology. As much as I do traditional hash, technology gave me the ability to do in one day what took me two months, three months to make. Okay? Uh, it's, <laughs> I, I, would have, I would have never dreamed in a million years when I was in the mountain of India or in Morocco or in Pakistan doing the dry sea that it would get to that. It's the patent on it which makes it even more like I pitch myself every day. But it comes down to quality. I don't make quality. Quality is given to me. When I, when I travel in producing country and I smoke with people after, they didn't care much that I made the ash or the charas. They wanted to know where I want to make it. Which valley, which hamlet, how high, what type of cultivar. It's like, it's the land, the climate, the cultivar and the farmer for me here in California. They and the breeder. They give me the quality. I don't make quality. I can do great stuff with quality, but I don't make quality. I'm not a magician. Yeah, I hear that. Fire in, fire out, they say. Yeah, I give to the farmer and the breeder, always. I'm, I'm like a winemaker. You don't even have the name of the winemaker on a bottle of Bordeaux. They don't care. They care only to blow your palate away. That's pretty much what I would like to be. I don't care for the stardom. I just want to make ash and blow people palate away. That's it. <laughs> I respect that. And that, that shows in your work and in your passion whenever you're speaking about this stuff. <laughs> I would like to circle back a little bit to, uh, to the technical side of stuff here. So we've got, you, you explained, you throw the valve on your machine, the water with the resin 
drains out. It goes through three different size micron screens, mm-hmm. um, collecting different parts along the way. Now, after I would imagine you run this material multiple times. It's not a one a one and done with the material. Right? In eight and twelve time, I my machine. Okay. And I have only two percent of cannabinoid left in my plant material when I'm finished with it. Wow, that's fantastic. And part of myself on that one, yeah. Yeah, that's some great news. For years, I worried about how much I was leaving in my plant material until I finally tested it. I picked up uh, six different watches that I, uh, the plant material was frozen. The washed material, I, I, I kept it frozen and I gave that to, te- to testing to, uh, to a lab. And they come back telling me I had only two percent left. I can compose that. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's fantastic efficacy of your extraction or your your separation in this case. So now let's say we've got all of these various grades or a couple different grades of collected resin glands on on your two different micron screens that you've got. Um, now that you've got this, it's still wet. It's got water. Uh, what do you do? How do you get it into these this temple ball pictures that we see you post? So, I, I, I we talk about the abscission that hold the the gland to the stock. Okay. When I learned that, when I got that science, I could fine tune my quest for rightness for quality for rightness of the gland. Because instead of looking at a, pl- at a cannabis plant and not being able to see even what I collect, I could imagine a fruit tree. How do you collect the ripest fruit on a fruit tree? The question began. So, or you go, you touch and you smell, can't do, or you just shake the tree a tiny bit and you have the ripest fruit falling down. And then the second time, you increase the power and you shake a tiny bit stronger and you have that second dimension of ripeness. And then a little bit stronger and stronger and stronger until you have no fruit on the tree anymore. Every one of my wash is a slice of the, of the ripeness of the whole plant. Doesn't matter the color, doesn't matter the size. It's the attachments that the size of the abscission that define the rightness and all the gland I connect with that much force would be uh, a dimension of the, of rightness of the of the whole plant. And every one of my wash, you can you you can see the difference in uh, in quality. And it's so accurate that I can tell you to the day how early or how late you have been harvesting your plant. So every bowl is kept separated for that. Once I collect the resin, I make a patty, pretty thin. I'm trying to have everywhere, all the patty the same signal because I use a freeze dryer. So I, I spread it, make the patty, and put that in the freezer. And wash after wash, I make a patty Pretty much, they're not the same size at all, but pretty much the same thickness so that it facilitates the, 
the drying process, uh, I have a more even uh, drying process. And basically every other day I, uh, I fill up my, uh, my dryer and, uh, and I freeze dry the material. On the material has been freeze dried to perfection. I let it sit overnight because it, it's coming from space, literally. I let it, it sit overnight and then I press it with a hot bottle of water, 180, 200 Fahrenheit. Between turkey bag, I, I press it three times, somewhere around five, six, seven minutes to have a decarboxylation of approximately 20 minutes, 25 minutes if I can, to have like 25% decarboxylation of the THCA into THC. And, uh, and then I find the final form of it is a, what I call a temple ball to uh, give credit to that amazing text that is the Royal Nepalese temple ball that I experienced when, uh, when I was very young. So I call that a temple ball and it's also the, the best, the least surface and the most contained uh, way to, uh, to have your resin because the outside shell protects the inside. There is, my, my temple ball hardly smell. You need to break it to smell it. You don't want, you don't want your ash or your resin to smell too strong because if you smell it, you're losing it. So you need to keep it in the fridge. Me, I don't want to keep my ash in the fridge. I want it to edge. I need certain conditions for things to happen into that mass of resin. And I keep it minimum three months before I put it on the market. The, the inside of the resin transform. Everything that is not terpene, like everything that is the matrix of the gland is going to be absorbed by the resin itself that is corrosive. And after three months, the taste is different, it's smoother, there is, uh, it's a different terpene profile. Uh, in the first experiment I did in Canada, that is not really scientific, but not too bad, I had THCV appear in the third month, 2% THCV appear when I didn't, it didn't appear in the flower. Interesting. It's pretty trippy. It's like, and I'm, I have experienced aging many times, like many, many, many times, but I have never look at the science behind and uh, I'm, uh, we're talking to lab uh, and university to be able to do that type of research because what I want is pretty costly at the end of the day when you need to triple every test to be able to have it valid and uh, you want half a dozen strain in three different type of temperature and, and packaging it's uh, it goes fast into the 200, 300,000 dollar investment. It's not. So something that I find really interesting about what you were just talking about is, is the way things change as they're aged and all of these um, trichome glands and resin heads and the actual membrane material being absorbed uh, 
or being changed by the cannabinoids uh, and by the resin itself. Uh, I know that you're doing some work with the Trichome Research Initiative to mm-hmm. quantify what's going on in that process and all of that. But you know, the whole thing is so interesting to me because that's something we don't experience a lot of in in the cannabis field is the concept of aging and the nuance that that gives. So, um, where where do you stand with the the Trichome Research Initiative and the the research that's being done, and then finally being able to implement that into your sales process and selling different vintages of products. For me, producing ash and having my ash on the shelf, it's not what I am interested to do at all. To tell you the truth, it's like I uh, I don't have anything on the shelf anyway because it's uh, imply too much. I'm interested into the science behind. It's like I, uh, I, if I make ash for shelf, it's to be able to protect my farmer in the Emerald Triangle to show how good they are so that they can survive because it's a bloody Bordeaux of cannabis. Uh, you know what I mean? Making ash just to produce I'm not a producer. I made ash of my life, but I'm not a producer. I want the science behind. I want, I have experienced so much aging that I always dreamed to know what's going on. Yeah, it is. Uh, it seems incredibly interesting. One of the things that you mentioned earlier that that perked my ears up a little bit was after you're freeze drying and you're pressing with a hot water bottle, um, and, and it's partially decarboxylating. Is that in effect melting some of the uh, the matrix material or the, the the containers, the glands themselves, in order to make the oil come out a little more and speed that process up? You explode the gland that retain the, the resin within. So the resin become more than the matrix. Much more. All in its body, the matrix. And I was telling you how I made the charas into thin pancake that you could see through. Mm-hmm. You never really, you smoke one time what you did during the day, but then you pack it and you don't touch it for a while. The day you make it, you can see little brack, the, not the brack, the little piece of leaf, like a, any little part of the flower as a contaminant, you can pistil and stuff, you can see it all. Like if it's a dry uh, brack skin that protects the seeds, like you can see it clearly because your five grams, seven grams is literally transparent. You can see through it. You look at it three weeks later, it's gone. Okay? There is, there is a lot happening during the, the beginning like that. Because there is so much power that you release that is acidic and corrosive and that bounds together into a, something new that is called ashish. It's like, for me, a little bit in my head, it's a chemical reaction, and I'm not a scientist, huh? Uh, like fermentation is, but it's possibly the total opposite of what fermentation is, but it creates a change in terpene profile in, 
in the overall resin as it was unpressed. Yeah, that is so interesting. I uh, I love it. It's uh, anything in this industry where there are still unknowns is so exciting, and it's great that you're kind of pioneering the way through trying to understand this and making moves towards understanding it. Yeah, and, and that's why I, I I cannot concentrate but on hashish. I'm I'm just scratching the surface here, and people say, "Oh, but why don't you uh, you yeah?" I'm tripping also on extraction. I come from south of France. I was born in the, in the perfume industry. I, uh, I understood the potential of BHO way before people were still doing shatter. I, I knew the potential of it and, and they have been the breaking ground for the past 12 years, creating new products that everybody else in, uh, in the industry is following the step of the BHO extraction. I have an amazing respect for them, but I cannot have that education as much. It's, it's not as important as much as concentrating on, on my first love, basically. I'm fascinated by rosin, but I, uh, I have students that are rosin master that make me trip and I can partake and appreciate their art form without having to go deep into the science behind because uh, it's just too much for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fact that you follow your passion is what, what makes everyone love you in the industry, man. Um, what What's in the pipeline for you as Frenchy Cannoli and Frenchy Cannoli Brands? Um, do you have new projects that we may see the fruits of this year? I have three books coming out. All right. Tell us about that. I have a book on uh, do-it-yourself, like my tech and the science behind the tech to the minute details. Okay. Uh, then there is the second one is on edible, like uh, the, the history of edible and the next generation of edible where you use terpen and spices to custom tailored your uh, your edible experience and then I have a book on uh, and that it, it's kind of a recipe book but we I give the history we give all the spices all their potential a few recipes but we want the people to push the people to uh, to do it themselves it's like you have a few recipes to give you an idea but you have all the spices with all their power and, and all that decarboxylation charm. And now you can custom tailor exactly what you want. I love that. Where can, uh, where are, can we, is this something we can buy on Amazon or is this something we can find you at a trade show with? How do we, how do we get them? Yeah, it would be sold on Amazon. I hope so. The third one is the history of Ashish. Literally starting with the, uh, the history of cannabis starting like uh, two million years ago, I went far. I, I, I went crazy on the history of, of, of Ashish, which would be more uh, a coffee table book. The two first one, more like a cheap, uh, but super strong type of book that you can keep in the kitchen and, and, or in a, in the washing room that doesn't, uh, you can take note on it, 
C'est comme si il y a qu'un... Tu can use look at it again and again and again in the worst condition, it's going to be good for you. The third one, more the, the coffee table, the nice picture type of stuff. I love it. Sounds like staples that anyone that's in the industry or interested should, uh, should definitely have. And very soon, I will... Uh, I will have uh, a three-part Frenchie Dream of Ashes documentary that will be for people to download. Uh, I'm not sure where and when yet, but it's uh, we, we are finishing the editing of, uh, of the documentary. And that's my future. But, uh, as you see, producing for a dispensary has not been named yet. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, you as soon as you get caught in the trap of trying to turn it into a business, you don't get to follow your passion as much. So it seems like you're you're setting yourself up to be able to do exactly what you want to do. I I had not find the the same spirit on the investment side to to say it nicely but plainly. You know, I uh, and I uh, I don't trust because. There is, it's a whole responsibility toward my farmer. It's like you take me, you, I come with a bunch of farmers that you need to protect. It's like, if I sell the, if I sell the ash, the ash come with pre-roll and with the flower of the farmer. Otherwise, I don't do it. I respect that. It's like, I want people to realize that the quality I make come from a specific point. There is an origin to goodness. Every extractor should do the same than me, actually, because we are as good as our farmer and our genetic. Tell the people where your stuff comes from. Tell the people who made it happen for you. And it's more power. It's more, it's double promotion, literally triple troop promotion, but it's like, we owe it to them. Otherwise, the Emerald Triangle is going to be fucked up by big corporations the way it's going. It's a shame. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. It's very, very important to take all of these people who have put so much of their passion into making a quality product to be extracted or separated and, and, and actually hold them up. Because so much of it, it just falls on the, the brand name of whatever the concentrate is. Yeah, but what is a brand? It's not because you have uh, some product on the shelf and you pay a fortune the distributor so that you can be on the shelf that you're a brand. A brand is recognized. A brand is Vuitton. Vuitton started with an old dude that was making custom, custom made shoes that were so amazing that everybody was talking about it. Everybody wanted it. You don't become a brand. They your customer make you a brand. You don't decide you are one. They do. And it's true. It's like, let's, let's be real. And your brand is also the goodness of what you have inside. If you say that it comes from such and such a farmer, doesn't matter where is the farmer and the guy is regenerative farmer. It connects everything. It's like it's a, and it's good for your business in the first place. It's like, it's insane that we don't promote the origin of the amazing product 
that we have on shelves. It's crazy. It's just a different school of thought. You know, I think a lot of that comes from being uh, a little unsure. Uh, a lot of folks being a little unsure of themselves and, and trying to over-promote their brand and, and, and being a little bit scared to share that spotlight. But it always ends up working out for the best when people do decide to do it. To tell you the truth, it's marketing company that are lying. It's like they don't have the right perspective. A brand, you become a brand through time, through dedication, through love. Through putting the best of the best always. You know what I mean? I do. The brand. It's not having spending millions of dollars that you're going to trust the people. Do you trust Medman? Do you trust this big company that put swag on the table? No. Certainly not. Well, speaking about a little bit of uh, a little trust and love, uh, let's just say that I'm Frenchie Cannoli. I've got this product. I know exactly where it came from. I know that I worked on it myself. Very proud of it. The best of the best. That stuff that you were after in all of your travels. Now you've made some. Talk to me about your special occasion stash. What a what is it? How are we going to enjoy it? Tell me tell me a story about how Frenchie enjoys the his premium stuff. Uh, I like the hookah. Okay. I like the hookah, especially since I'm using a bowl from a, a French company that made that bowl for uh, to smoke shisha. It's called, it's called a quasar, quasar shisha. And so it's like, it's a, a big donut in, uh, in crystals, in, uh, in glass with a, a wall of uh, a finger's eye wall. Pretty thick. And on top of it, you have an aluminum box that fit in on top. And inside that aluminum device that is all calculated for uh, ventilation, you put coals. So you put your coals, you close it, and you put that on a hookah, four, five, six, eight people. You, uh, you can put like up to 10, 12 grams in a, of ash in, a, in that baby. Smoke hundreds of people for hours. But the trick is that when you start puffing, that chamber is cold. And what makes the vaporization is the, how hot the air inside the glass chamber is. So it becomes warmer and warmer and warmer per step. That means that you can smoke, you can smoke every terpene. You have every boiling point of every terpene until you have the last rush and you come into the boiling point of the, of the cannabinoid. And it keeps bubbling like this until it literally disappears. There is nothing left in, uh, in your bowl except maybe some, uh, silver ashes. If you do that with a rosin or any other extract, there is nothing left in, in a bowl. And the temperature de- doesn't go higher up than 420, 450. We're trying to gun it. It's like, wow. Smoking like that, it's amazing. It doesn't burn. It just vape slowly, slowly. 
and the intensity of the vaporization, it's the people pulling and bringing the, the heat to the coal. It's the coal are like a, a beating earth, literally, if you have enough people going at it. It's an amazing stone and an experience you won't forget ever. It's got a life of its own. I love that. That sounds like a, a full experience. So what are you personally most excited about regarding the future that Hash has to offer? World legalization. When the big boy come into play, when country like Afghanistan, Lebanon, Morocco come into play that you want, you want, you want to talk quantity. You've never been in a producing country. Are you out of your mind? Those people have been doing quantity for millennium against the law. And you want to go against them? No. It's like it's the opposite. In those countries, they, they want their quality to get higher so they can compete with our quality market as well. So it's like the big boy that thinks that they're going to rule the world because they're growing in a greenhouse in Canada or in America. They have no idea what's happening in Morocco. I visited a farm. The guy had three million plants, small farm. Three million plants, <laughs> seeds plant. Like it never ends. Two valleys, one to next, like insane. Producing country like in India, it grows by itself. You just throw the seeds, and that seeds, there is no nutrients, there is no chemical, there is no need for nothing. You don't compete with that, dude. They got the land race. You want to compete with Colombia, with the land race and the quality they can put on the table, or Mexico, that is legalizing. Dude, seriously, but you're dreaming. It's like, and you don't protect your, your heritage that you have here with the amazing breeder and farmer there is in America. You don't protect those, but you go big time. Wow. It's like, uh, you're living in, uh, in pure delirium. You're gonna have, uh, a hard wake up as soon as it's world trade. So it's like mislegalization that I dream of. And being able to uh, to do my experiment better with any university, not having to go to Canada or maybe Maryland, we're uh, we're talking uh, lately, like or Israel. It's like it's not in California. I like for me, California is the Bordeaux of cannabis. So where do a hash maker live? Well, in Bordeaux. Yeah. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's very simple. For me, as much as I love my farmer, I'm here because what they put on the table is insane. And what they have in the closet is, pff, I don't even want to think of it. We definitely do have some quality cannabis here in the state. You're known worldwide. Yeah. It's a shame to lose that and go swipe uh, quantity. Mm-hmm. Well, if people want to reach out to you, Frenchie, how do they get a hold of you? What's the best way? So you can DM me on my IG. You can email me, Frenchie, 
at frenchycanoli.com. Uh, otherwise, you got everything I have on uh, www.frenchycanoli.com. On my website, you have all my articles, uh, all the reference I use to uh, write those articles, all my favorite books, uh, link to all the videos of my workshops, uh, the research, uh, Tricon Research Initiative, uh, stuff that I hope develop soon. Uh, everything that I, uh, that I have is available to you. And I always will be here to, uh, to answer a question. It's like it's a privilege for me truly to share my passion. And the best reward you can give me is to show me quality that you have done through my inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> Well, your passion is certainly contagious, sir. Uh, I, uh, I respect a lot what you're doing. I can't wait to get my hands on those books that you're putting out. And uh, Frenchie Cannoli, master hashishan and founder of Frenchie Cannoli Brand. Thanks for joining us on The Modern Extractor. Man, thank you so much for the conversation. I'd love to talk shop with you guys. Thank you, Frenchie, for everything you did for the community, for the culture, and the science that make our industry what it is. I consider myself incredibly lucky to have had the time to talk with him before his passing. I really hope he knew how great everyone thought he was. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Concentration 2019 was where I first saw Frenchie speaking on stage. Since then, Concentration has rebranded into the Extraction Expo, and it's coming up quick. This year's Extraction Expo is coming up September 30th through October 1st at the LAX Marriott in Los Angeles, and I'll be there covering it. It's the only trade show or conference completely dedicated to extraction. All of the exhibitors are pertinent to the extraction business, and all the speakers and panel discussions are targeted at us. It's the best networking and educational event specific to our industry, and modern extractor listeners are eligible for half-price tickets. I'll be there with a booth, interviewing exhibitors, speakers, and interesting guests, handing out some swag, and doing my modern extractor thing to cover the latest and greatest in the industry. So, come find me and shake my hand. Ticket sales and information about the expo are available at extractionexpo.net. When you go to purchase your tickets, don't forget to enter our promo code MODX to get them for half price. That's M-O-D-E-X, no spaces. I'll see you at the expo. As always, if you want to hear about something specific on the show, let me know. Email me, jason at modernextractor.com. Make sure to follow the show on Instagram at the underscore modern underscore extractor. If you guys like the show, please subscribe, leave a rating, and a review on Apple Podcasts. The more subscribers and better reviews I get, the better guests I can keep booking for you here in the future. Stay tuned for next week, where we'll be joined by Catherine Sidman, a.k.a. Sidco Cat. Catherine is incredibly well-networked in the extraction and processing community, and she's the only other person I know that's covering the lab science beat. It seems like she's at every trade show and every conference, always moderating a panel or interviewing interesting guests. You can always find her up in the mix for whatever the latest, greatest, and most interesting stuff going on in our industry is, and I'm excited to sit down with her for a few minutes and share it with you guys. A big thanks to Isada Venegas for handling business on the show's social media, and a shout out to the new fools for bringing the funk to the Mod X theme song. Thanks again to everybody for tuning into The Modern Extractor. New episodes are out every Tuesday. I'm Jason Showered. Let's talk soon.